growing up in the, uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I don't really remember much of the 70s, um, but I remember the 80s. And those decades, or maybe the end of the 70s and the early 80s, was, in my opinion, the best time for kids to grow up. There were no cell phones. There was no internet. Where we lived, we couldn't get cable TV. In fact, if you happen to have two TVs, one of them was black and white and this big. Didn't matter that the TV didn't have a remote because we only got two channels anyway. And if you did want to change the channel to turn, or to turn it up, you had to get up and walk over there. Or I, had, Dad would tell me to get up and walk over there. But it was the golden age of television shows. MacGyver. Airwolf. Knight Rider. Hardcastle and McCormick. The Fall Guy. Dukes of Hazard, Riptide, the list could go on and on. But none of them were as good as the A-Team. Mr. T with his jewelry and attitude. That classic van stocked with machine guns. At the end of every episode... After some harrowing adventure with terrific explosions, when everything worked out just beautifully, Hannibal would light his cigar and say, I love it when a plan comes together. And don't you just love it when that plan comes together? Don't you love it when your life plan works out just beautifully, just perfectly? You know what I'm talking about, right? The, the plan that you've made, that plan in which your, your kids never get sick, that, that plan in which you never lose your job, you never get diagnosed with cancer, that plan where you marry the person of your dreams and live happily ever after, the plan where everybody likes you and all of life comes up roses. We all have that plan, right? Because we're Christians... This plan just perfectly came together for us, didn't it? It must be true because I've heard the statement somewhere that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. But I don't know about for you. But it seems that my plan went wrong somewhere along the way. Probably in the 70s. And it turns out that not only was the whole premise of the A-Team a lie, that every week the plan was going to come together, uh, but I was also deceived about my faith in God. It's kind of fallen out of favor of these days, but you've probably heard that saying before, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's sometimes presented as being the gospel. In fact, it's the first of the, the four spiritual laws, which was published, put out by Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he wrote this, this little booklet about these four spiritual laws because he had a heart for the lost. 
He wanted to train others to share the gospel, specifically with college students. And so his goals were noble and right. And and in light of Scripture, it's not even that bad of a statement, actually. The problem is, is that we have a different definition of what a wonderful life would be than what the Bible presents for those, for those who take up their cross daily and follow Jesus, right? See, God, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And when we say that, we sometimes in our minds combine it with Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But don't tell people that that's the gospel. Don't tell that to the first Christians as they were being eaten by lions in the Roman Colosseum. Don't tell that to dying hospice patients. Don't tell that to scores of faithful Christians in North Korea or Syria or Egypt or China or name your country. Even for us. We have it so good in this nation. And that's actually why prosperity preachers get away with their heresy here. Because we have it so good. Nevertheless, how can we say that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life when we try so hard to do the right thing, we try so hard to be obedient to his commands, to do good works in keeping with salvation, and wonderful things don't happen to us. In fact, the world ends up hating us. Christians are becoming increasingly the objects of scorn And the latest sort of uh, catalyst to that has been the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We're derided lately as Christian nationalists, even by some who claim Christ, simply because we exercise our right to vote, free speech in a way that is informed by our faith in Christ. And if you haven't heard that term lately or in the last few uh, months, Christian nationalist, you're going to hear it. And as near as I can tell, even though it's being used in a derogatory way toward Christians, it, it just means that you're a Christian who's also a patriot. But I digress. What if we've gotten confused about what the gospel actually is? What if the wonderful plan that God has for us is not wonderful in the way that we define wonderful, but it's so much more than that? What if the plan that God has for us truly is a future and a hope, plans for our welfare and not for evil, yet a plan that is likely to be filled with sufferings in this present time that are nevertheless not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us? And so we have to stop and ask the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ is surrounded with resurrection. It's surrounded with resurrection. It has to be, or there is no good news. The fact that Jesus was a good teacher is not enough. Some would claim that the reports of his death were greatly exaggerated. He's a good teacher, but he didn't really die. Or or they would say that he rose but not physically, spiritually, in our hearts, whatever that means. Surely, 
We can believe this because we're people of, of science. So he couldn't have actually physically risen from the dead. I mean, come on. The good news of Jesus Christ must include his resurrection. And then, not only his, but for those of his disciples, his followers, Christians as well. And that's where Paul goes as we reach the, 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 the peak, the, the penultimate chapter of his letter that we've been studying, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It, it really is the peak of this letter. And so I'm going to read, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. It's a long chapter, and honestly, it gets pretty complicated in the middle. Um, we'll get there um, a bit later on. But this chapter is of vital importance for us to understand. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, that yes, all of Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is especially important and profitable for Christians. Because as Paul says down in verse 17 of this chapter, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So let's read these first 11 verses together. We're only, to be honest, we're only going to focus on the first two verses this morning. It's going to take us a while to get through this chapter. But let me read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. It says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, I pray that um, you would give us what we need today. That you would feed us from your word. Lord, I pray that we would understand the gospel by which we were saved, in which we stand, the gospel to which we hold fast to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, the, the climax of the book of 1 Corinthians is this chapter. Here now, Paul, Paul has moved on from the, uh, the problem of, in the previous several chapters, really from 11 to 14, the problem of the, of the Corinthian church's disorderly worship, and he moves now to this teaching that he calls, or he says is of first importance, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing that he has set up until this point is as important as this. This is the foundation for all of it. 
the disunity and the divisions surrounding their, their choosing of one teacher over another are not as important as understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the immorality that has been among their members, or at least that they have tolerated in their church, or maybe even celebrated as you think back to chapter 5, it's not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem of taking one another before a pagan court to decide their differences and disputes is not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't hear me say that those things are not important. They're incredibly important. They're in Scripture, and Paul has been addressing them. But without the gospel, they might as well just be unbelievers. Even the marriage problems that have developed, the casual way that they have dealt with idolatry, all of these things, the most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is of first importance. And he says, and I want to define this specifically, this is, the, the, I believe, the best biblical definition of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now that's what we're going to see as this, this chapter unfolds. He's going to particularly emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, without the resurrection, Jesus is just dead in history. Right? Like Muhammad, who's dead in history, or Buddha, or Confucius, or Elvis. The resurrection, however, changes everything. As Paul begins this chapter, really what he's doing is circling back to what he's already said as he began this whole letter. Listen to a couple of the verses from chapter 1. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Then he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, he says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And with, with as important as this message is, there are some in Corinth some in the city, some in the church who are beginning to deny this foundational doctrine, this foundational teaching. He says this down in verse 12, and we will get there in the coming weeks. And so what we have to understand is that this chapter, this isn't, this isn't merely a nice reminder. Don't forget the gospel. Oh yeah, or P.S., right? This, this is the core. This is the root of their problem. Their wrong belief, denying the resurrection that is um, likely to spread through the church, this wrong belief in denying the resurrection is the result of all of the misbehavior that he's been addressing. Do you know what's heartbreaking here? As you read through this, read through this letter, as we think of the saints who were sitting in church as the letter was read to them, probably a, a church, scholars believe, 
maybe around our size, maybe a little bit smaller even. You know what's heartbreaking about this letter? He calls them brothers, brethren, members of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. They have so, some of them at least, have so wandered from the truth that some of them have started to deny the resurrection. The resurrection, by the way, that, that at one point, at, at least at one point, they believed. L- look at verse 11. Look down there. Verse 11 says, so whether it was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. And then in verse 12, he says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? At one point, at least, they believed. Now, as I I said, and this can't be said enough, the good news is very specific. The gospel, which means good news, the good news is very specific. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the basis of our salvation. Which Paul makes very clear in this opening paragraph here. It is the gospel that is preached It is the gospel that was received. It is the gospel in which we stand. And it is the gospel to which we must hold fast. And so let's break this down following that outline. And so first it is the gospel preached. The gospel preached. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now with all of this, um, as we've walked through these first 14 previous chapters here, with all of the disorder in the Corinthian church, with even, even some of them denying the resurrection, notice, as I said, that he still treats them with, a, with the affection of a family. A familial affection. He calls them brothers, brethren. Now, in the grand scheme of things, uh, we can probably be, it's fair to assume that these are relatively new Christians. In fact, all of Christianity is, by the time Paul is writing this letter to them, is probably less than 25 or 30 years old. And so, most veteran Christians living in Corinth, those who have been believers the longest, probably is something like five years, maybe six. As we consider that statement and think around the room, there are those in here who have been Christians longer than Christianity existed, at least in that sort of formal sense in the New Testament. And as new Christians in Corinth, we've certainly seen their struggles with Christian maturity. But notice that he's still still warm and caring toward them. We can see this especially if we compare what he writes to them. Now I would remind you, brothers, compare that to to his rebuke of the Corinthians, I mean the Galatians. As he says to them in Galatians, I think it's in chapter 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Oh foolish Galatians, he had said. I would remind you, brothers. 
Nevertheless, even in love, even with his care for them, this is still a, a strong statement, isn't it? Paul is calling them to, and even to remember his ministry among them. And his ministry was simply this, preach the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, there's certainly more involved than just simply preaching when it comes to pastoral ministry, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to planting a church, as Paul did in Corinth, to pastoring the flock of God. There's more involved than just simply preaching, but there's not less than that. Pastors are called to follow the commands of Christ and the example of the apostles. We are called to preach the word, to feed and tend his sheep, as he himself said to Peter. And what Paul says over and over again throughout, really throughout all of his writings in the New Testament, he says that the content or the message of the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The content, the message of that good news cannot be separated from the power of the gospel. And this is a power that brings salvation. And so we could say it like this. The preaching of the gospel, which is God's message of good news, has power. In Romans chapter 1, he writes to them, and he's so longing to be with the, the church at Rome, and he, and he writes this in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so what Paul is doing is reminding them that he has preached the gospel to them, which is the power of God for salvation. What he's doing is, is obediently following Jesus' great commission, right? Listen to how the end of Mark's gospel puts the great commission. In, in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, we read this, and, and he said to them, Jesus said to the apostles, go, disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures, preaching the gospel is the primary work of the church. Every pastor is to give himself over to preaching. And notice that Paul uses this word, preach, or pre I preached to you. He uses this twice in these two verses, and then he uses it again down in verse 11. Now, I want to point this out, that in Greek, there are actually two different words that he uses. They're not even really related, only in the content of what he's doing. But they're two totally different words. And so the first two that he uses in verses 1 and 2, if we translated them literally, they would be connected to the word evangelized, right? Which means I, I good news to you is what he means. But in verse 11, he uses the word for heralded or proclaimed. Now, 
They're obviously synonyms. I don't want to make too big of a deal about it. But in those first two verses in particular, he is stressing the foundation of their faith. The good news that I good newsed to you, he says. He's stressing the foundation of their faith. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I evangeled to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word. I I good-newsed to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's the point. The church was evangelized, and we continue, down in verse 11, he uses the word for herald, we continue to herald or proclaim the word of God. The gospel is a message to be preached. Without it, we have no hope. This is essentially the the message of this whole chapter. That the good news of Jesus Christ is something that must be proclaimed because without it, we have no hope. Thanks be to God. The gospel has penetrated the stone hearts of the Corinthians and they did receive the good news of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is received. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. And Paul uses that phrase, which you received, after reminding them that he had preached the gospel. And so if preaching the gospel, proclaiming, uh, good-newsing the gospel is the most important thing, the next most important thing is that they have received it, meaning that they have embraced it as truth. Of course, this should remind us of, of John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 where John is introducing the good news, the gospel of the life of Jesus Christ, and he says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To all who did receive him. John is explaining there that that received him is synonymous with believed in his name. That's what he means. That's what this phrase means here in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, which you received, believed in his name. So to receive the gospel is to receive Christ. He says this clearly down in verse 11, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Believed what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believed, as it says in verse 3, what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, just like the Scripture says. Moreover, to, to receive the gospel, to receive Christ, is not merely to accept his teaching as inspirational. Right? C.S. Lewis, in his work mere Christianity he wrote this I've read this quote many times it's a really good quote he says I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him about Christ which is this this is the foolish thing he says I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God that's the one thing we must not say A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg 
or else he would be the devil of hell, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. He's either, as Lewis famously is saying here, he's either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And to receive him is to receive him as Lord. Notice that that's in the past tense. Uh, again, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, received, past tense. There was a moment in their life, let me say this, there's a moment in your life when you heard the gospel and you embraced it as truth. This is, this is faith. The just shall live by faith. This is the doctrine of conversion. Listen to, the, listen to the story of the birth of the church from Acts chapter 2. As Peter is preaching, um, we come to his conclusion, and he's kind of interrupted, I think. But in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 to 41, we read this. Peter is preaching, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. But see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it doesn't end with conversion. It doesn't end, it's not over when, when a person professes faith in Christ and is baptized. Being added to the membership of a, of a specific body of believers is a vital part of, of a Christian's life. But in many ways, it's just the beginning of salvation. And as believers, we stand in the gospel. Look at this again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand. Stand in the gospel. Now he's in the present tense. You see that? Paul is telling them that their standing is in Christ, which means that it is certain. If you have believed in him, if you have confessed like Peter does, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, if you have put your faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross, his payment for your sin, then you are a partaker of salvation. Now, now, just a side note here so that we don't get lost in this. Um, he's talking about our standing, or we could say our status before God. Sometimes we can read this phrase and, and think about passage in passages in which we are we're called to stand firm. And yes, there's an obvious connection. In fact, he's going to go there in the next statement. 
But the very reason that we are standing at all is because of Christ. In which you stand is his doing, not yours. If your status before Christ is Christian, believer, redeemed, converted, child of God, if that is your status, your standing before Christ, that's because he did that. There are two Old Testament passages that I think beautifully illustrate this. The first is Psalm 40. Just listen to the first three verses. Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3 says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. If you have a standing before God, it's because he put your feet on the solid rock. And then listen to the imagery. In fact, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 37. This is another one of my favorite passages. I've read it a bunch. Ezekiel chapter, right after Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 37. Let me read the first 14 verses. As I read this, will you consider and think about it? Um, Ephesians chapter 2. Well, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Right? Think of that as I read Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and cause, will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling of the bones, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. 
Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. It is at this point, after Jesus has lifted us out of the miry bog and put our feet on the solid rock, after he has, using the preaching, the prophesying of the word of God, after he has breathed into us a new life, uh, that we, it is after this that we are able to stand. That we are able to stand in the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why so many, as we transition here, this is why so many of the New Testament epistles end with this kind of charge. Uh, let me read just a few. These are the endings of some of the letters in the New Testament. In fact, in this very letter, Paul will say, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Do you know why we are able to stand firm in the faith? Because he's breathed new life into us and put us on the solid rock. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Therefore, my brothers, whom I long and, uh, love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It is only possible to stand because Christ has put our feet upon the rock. This leads us right into verse 2, which is all about sanctification. It is all about the gospel actively saving you. 1 Corinthians 15, look at this again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Hold fast to the gospel. Don't miss it. This is, this is in the present tense still. You are being saved right now. The fact that you are being sanctified, set up, you have been set apart as holy. So in verse 1, he uses the past tense, you have been saved. You also are being saved in verse 2. We're being, we have been set apart. We are being made holy. We are being conformed to, to the image of Christ. The fact that you are being sanctified, made holy, it continues more and more as we hear the word of God preached every Lord's Day, when the church assembled for what we call the ordinary means of grace, the Lord has designed his day, the Lord's day, Sunday, the Lord has de designed this day to be a day of rest and refreshment, of feasting upon his goodness. Remember Jesus' words to Peter at the end of the gospel according to John, feed my lambs, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Yes, there is a personal aspect to your sanctification, right? 
You must hide God's word in your heart. You must pray and read and walk with Christ. But there are so many more passages throughout Scripture that point to this happening in community as the church gathers. So consider again the early church in Acts chapter 2. The next verses from what I just read, after they received the good news, received Christ as Lord, Acts 2, verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Most of that passage, Acts chapter 2, most of that would not have happened if they went straight home after the closing prayer. Have you considered that? Most of you don't do that. I'm not. But if they got up during that final song and slipped out every week, most of verses 42 to 48 of Acts chapter 2 would not have happened. And so I would encourage you to stay for dinner. Sit around the table and talk to people, as so many do. I know the line can be long. It's okay. We love one another. Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, the teaching of God's word and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then finally, Paul gives a warning against what we, really what we could call easy believism. Um, Look at the end of verse 2. He says, And by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. On, on this point, Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says this, It was no strange doctrine. It was that very gospel in which or by which they had hitherto stood and must continue to stand. If they gave up this truth, they left themselves no ground to stand upon, no footing in religion. Note, the doctrine of Christ's death and resurrection is at the foundation of Christianity. Remove this foundation and the whole fabric falls, and all our hopes for eternity sink at once. It is by holding this truth firmly that Christians are made to stand in the day of trial and kept faithful to God. Hold fast to the good news of Jesus Christ. He says it was that alone by which they could hope for salvation, For there is salvation in no other name, no name given under heaven by which we may be saved, but by the name of Jesus Christ. And so let us hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. Let us keep the saving truths of the gospel fixed in our minds, resolved much in our thoughts, and maintained and held fast to the end that we might see Christ. As the Apostle Paul said at the very end of his life, the very end of 2 Timothy, he says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved 
his appearing to as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to be called children of God. Those who have received him by, f- by faith, stand in him because he has put your feet on the rock and hold fast to him. And so today, we hold fast to Christ. We come together to remind one another to hang on, right? We come back to be reminded from God's word that the news is good. The news is good. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. If you believe in him, that is good news. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that as we study this chapter, as we ponder these words, think even just of the first couple of verses, that this would stir up thankfulness toward you in our hearts. One of the, I'm reminded in Romans, first couple chapters, and the sin that just takes over people, devolves into all kinds of immorality, that one of the root causes was that though they knew you, though they had heard of you, though they knew that there was a God, they were not thankful. And so, Lord, it is our prayer that we would be a people who are thankful to you for the good news of Jesus Christ. That as we come to the table, it would be um, for thanksgiving, to proclaim Christ's death with hearts of thankfulness and rejoicing. That though we come sometimes somberly thinking of the death, that we also come to proclaim Christ's resurrection. And so we rejoice in his eternal life. Father, I pray that you would continue to make us like Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.